Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Jenny Jackson is the author of Pineapple Street, a novel. Jenny is a vice president and executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf. A graduate of Williams College and the Columbia Publishing Course, she lives in Brooklyn Heights with her family. Pineapple Street is her first novel, and I have to say, I simply adore Jenny Jackson. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Pineapple Street, a novel. Congratulations. 
<laughs> Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I've listened to you interview all my favorite writers and it's kind of <laughs> surreal. I'm excited. <laughs> well, I'm excited because you've sent me so many great authors or they've come out of your creativity lab over there. So um, it's nice to be on this side of things. Okay. So for listeners who do not know, well, first of all, give your background just because I was just referencing you sending authors. So tell everyone ah. sort of your whole background as editor. And also maybe before we even get into the book, how you even got into that field of of working and publishing yourself. Sure. Yeah. So I've been an editor at the Knopf Group for 20 years. Um, I'm a vice president executive editor. And I started out by going to the Columbia Publishing course. I, I knew that I wanted to work in books. I didn't really know anybody who worked in books. I didn't, I had one friend in New York City. And so I moved to New York thinking I might just come for a summer program. And I felt so deeply in love with the city and with publishing. And I just had to stay. So 20 years later, here I am. And I came on as an editorial assistant at Vintage. So part of this same group. And I laugh whenever people ask me for my you know, resume. I'm like, yeah, it's one line. Um, I took a job <laughs> and I stayed for 20 years. But so it's been, it's just, I mean, I've basically done the same job for 20 years, but I've had the enormous fun of publishing a really wide range of books. And that's one of the things that's special about Knopf Doubleday Group is I've worked with Cormac McCarthy and Emily St. John Mandel, but also Kevin Kwan and Helen Fielding on the Bridget Jones books and J. Courtney Sullivan, Catherine Heine, Helen Ellis, Chris Bajalian. So a really incredible range, which is just so fun intellectually. Oh my gosh. And some of my favorites in there. So great. The authors that you represent. So awesome. Okay. Pineapple Street, your debut novel. When did this even begin to percolate? What's this novel about? First of all, let's start with, let's go to that. Sure. So it's a family story about women and money that is set in Brooklyn Heights. And I wrote this novel at a really weird time. I started it towards the end of lockdown and I was living on Pineapple Street and Really, my neighborhood had become my whole world because, you know, uh, our office was shut down and I wasn't ever taking the subway anywhere. And, you know, we weren't seeing people. So I was just walking around the neighborhood, basically talking to myself. And <laughs> so the neighbor, the, the novel grew out of sort of me daydreaming very much in Brooklyn Heights. And, you know, we had spent the first couple months of the pandemic with my in-laws in Connecticut, which was Amazing and also really weird because, you know, when when did you last live with another family and especially as an adult, you know, and and my husband and I've been together for 17 years, but, and I love his family, but it's not my family. And so I was thinking a lot about in-laws and family dynamics and then thinking a lot when I was home about Brooklyn Heights. And then I read this article in the New York Times called The Rich Kids Who Want to Tear Down Capitalism about millennials who reject the notion of inherited wealth. And it just, all these ideas clicked together for me. And it turned into this novel about a family in Brooklyn Heights where the youngest sibling decides that she needs to give away all of her money. And obviously people in the family think that that's a pretty wild idea. <laughs> And the other sister also, we find out, you know, has different relationships to money and makes different decisions along the way in her life as well. I mean, they all have, they are all in their own ways dealing with this. And I feel like 
your book in general. And I was trying to take away, what is Jenny trying to say about wealth? Like, what are you trying, what, what is your thesis on the whole thing? Like, is it ridiculous for people with inherited wealth to try to give it all away? Or is that what everyone should be doing? Or do you have no view and you're just poking fun? Like, how do you feel? How do you feel about it? Or how is the reader meant to feel at the end? You know, obviously you asked me the hardest question of all right off the bat. So I think that, you know, I would say my thesis is that in this world, we're all trying to be good. And that is our greatest sort of struggle, all of us every single day. And what being good looks like is different for everyone, you know? And I mean, I think I have often been blown away because you there are people who are you know celebrated in society for all of their amazing good deeds and you know and generosity towards causes and then you meet them and they're maybe not the nicest people on the other hand i had the chance to meet this guy once who runs a very large company that makes missiles and and instruments of war and he was just a really charming, nice person. And I've struggled for a long time with how you, um, how those two things can coexist and how nobody is actually altogether good or altogether bad. And so my thesis in this is that we're all trying to do our best and money is an interesting vehicle to do good. And so I wanted to kind of examine how people who, who have money as a resource think about being good. So interesting. I mean, the inherited notion, especially sort of this very waspy family, right? Like they've had money sort of trickle down and there's not as much as there was. And yet, you know, it's not like there's new, like I'm struggling to explain, but it's old money. Yeah. It's the old money. And what does that mean to their identity now? And how does it inform what they should do to be good? Right. I mean, yeah. All the different kids take a new path and yet they make decisions. They are lucky enough to be able to make the decisions that they want to make, all three of them really. And there are so many things that you describe in with uh, with the parents that are so sort of funny and societal and of that time, even like, you know, the yeah. mother bringing her own food to the dinner party is just such a perfect <laughs> thing. Yeah. Or like when she finds out something so horrible that's happened to one of her daughters, just being like, okay, tennis at six, you know? Yes. So yes. it's it's also the customs of that old money that I feel like you take apart. Like it's almost a societal, like wealth is the one bucket, but it's also these societal yeah. things, yeah. You know, almost in the way that, you know, Kevin Kwan, your author, like really looks at society and sort of finds the humor and finds the things that maybe they don't notice about themselves. There's something about this that reminds me of that in, in just in that way. Totally different worlds, of course, but... I love that. I love that. I mean, I think you only need, you know, to look around to realize that we're in this moment of extreme social upheaval. But I also, am, I think I love thinking about micro generations and how our attitudes towards everything, money included, are really based on our birth year in some ways, you know? So I'm 43. I'm what we call a geriatric millennial. I was sort of born on the cusp of being a millennial and being Gen X. And my attitudes towards money are really different than the attitudes of people who are now in their 20s. I spent a lot of time over the pandemic with my uh, assistant who is in her early 20s and who is an incredibly smart, amazing person. And we have really different attitudes about money. I think I grew up sort of thinking like with that attitude that, you know, you do the best you can and make the most money you can and you enjoy the fruits of your labor. And she is a lot more 
socially minded than I was in my early 20s. So I think that for families now, the children who, you know, adult children have a very different relationship with money than their parents did. And so that's what I really enjoyed poking at in this novel. So Darlie, the oldest sister, her relationship with money really is related to her marriage because Darlie has kind of was unable to ask her husband to sign a prenup. She's given up access to her trust fund. And she just kind of felt like, you know, I was given a great education. I married someone with a great education. Between the two of us, we should be able to look after ourselves. Then she stops working when she has her second child. And when her husband gets fired, things get more complicated. Her storyline I think was one that I felt very close to. My best friend from college um, stopped working when she had kids and has spent a lot of time grappling with finding her intellectual life meaning without a job. And so that's something she and I've spent an incredible amount of time talking about. Whereas I think her mother probably didn't have that same struggle because raising children was her job. And I think that, you know, women our age, feel like, I mean, Zibby, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this, that (laughs) being a mom is a lot and it is a full-time job, but we also feel a lot of pressure to also work and also have a lot else going on. And it's, it's, it puts this character in an awkward position. And then it's, you know, uh, added to by the, the fact that she has really built a life around having a lot of money and her access to it is drying up. Well, I have to say, I mean, I'm just finishing um, Marianne Nestle's memoir. She's like the famous sort of food politics person. And she's in her, I think, 70s or 80s now. Anyway, she was saying like, these issues were there for her. You know, she was going through all the same issues. She was a scientist and she got a PhD and all this stuff. But she was writing, not that this is related to your book, but just to this conversation, like back then there were still those same things, only there weren't as many outlets. Like you could feel just as just as much drive to want to get out and do something, but there weren't even the places to go. I mean, I know we all know this. Even Jessica Gross, too, in her book, wrote about how even hundreds of years ago, the moms would be like, I can't believe my husband's like off at war and I have to be here nursing. And Yes, yes. It's like, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that is constantly wrestled with and I feel like there's never a good answer. But yes, darling, (laughs) right in the middle of it as well. Yeah, and then then the the second character, Sasha, has, has also a different relationship with money that's wrapped up in her relationship with her husband because Darlie is a middle-class girl who marries into this family. And, you know, I think it is such a classic genre, the fish out of water, you know, and I've just, I had so much fun writing about this family through the point of view of someone who would think it was perfectly fine to drink bubbly water out of a can. And her mother-in-law is like absolutely just beside herself that someone would do such a thing. (laughs) Meanwhile, like, her family is, you know, drinking, throwing beers off a ledge or doing yeah, whatever exactly. in the harbor and like, you know, <laughs> the way you painted them. Um, you also have this, this other subplot, which I won't like give away because it comes later, but with, you know, secrets and loss and all these extra feelings that are so intense. And how does a family that's used to not really dealing with feelings so much handle it when someone has the intensity of feeling and so much that she can't even like... Tell, she doesn't even want to tell anybody about it. And like, how does the permission to share across different families really affect everyone in that whole ecosystem? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, I think that, you know, wasp culture is an interesting place to start when we talk about repression or, you know, not wanting to, to, to talk about problems. But I mean, I think it's, I think it really spans a lot of different cultures that we're, you know, told to put on a stiff upper lip or put on a happy face. And then also the fact that this character has done something she's ashamed of makes it really hard for her to confess to her family what she's done. And she experiences panic attacks and starts, you know, deals with it in, in the way a lot of people do. But you know, a way that's kind of unhealthy. And I really wanted to talk about, about panic attacks and about anxiety and about mental illness, just because it's, it's absolutely kind of more widespread than ever. And also I think, you know, we're, we're, we're all just accustomed to kind of trying to power through when we're having a hard time. And the past couple of years have been really hard for a lot of people. Yeah. Very true. (laughs) So when you went through the actual writing of this, armed with all of your editorial skills, did you feel like as soon as you started a sentence or a paragraph or a section, you were like already editing it in your head? Like how did did it manifest itself with your own words? You know, it was interesting. I didn't edit a ton as I went, but I reread a lot whenever I stopped and needed to start up again. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like whenever I sat down at my computer, I had to reread, you know, the previous chapter because it was like, it was like, I mean, it was getting back into the flow, you know, and it, and it really helped me kind of orient myself and get back into that headspace. I've heard, I just, I know that it's so hard for people to stop tinkering and just let it flow. And I've even heard amazing tips for it. Like I think Jojo Moyes was the one who said that she would sometimes turn her font white so she couldn't see what she'd written so that she would just keep going. And I love that. So I didn't get to that point, but I really, um, I slapped my hands away and didn't let myself revise much as I went. I just let it go. And interestingly, you know, this book is three storylines. It's three point of view. And I wrote them separately for a while. And then when I was probably halfway through, I snapped them together and started writing them ABC, ABC, ABC. And the first edit that my editors gave me was, you know, in the second half of the book, the chapters really talk to each other. But in the first half, you need to knit those together better. And I was like, oh my God, I am so busted. Because that was, 
that, <laughs> that was the flaw in my process. You know, it was how I needed to write it, but that was something I had to go back and really work through because the chapters weren't talking to each other at, at first. Oh my gosh. It is so funny. A good editor can spot your weak, your Achilles heel so easily. And it's like, I thought maybe I would be beyond that, but God, no. <laughs> <laughs> how did you decide like where to publish? You know, it was a little bit scary, but I just decided to let my agent go out wide and send it around town. And I thought in some ways it's, I feel really vulnerable because since I've been an editor for 20 years, I know all these people and they're my friends and inevitably a lot of people are going to pass on it, but hopefully more are going to want it. And I just thought that I kind of I wanted to have the real experience. You know, I didn't want to play it safe and send it exclusively to one person and, you know, keep it a secret. I sort of thought, you know, I feel proud of it and I like it. And if I were an editor, I would bid on it. And so I feel certain that somebody else will. And so let's just let the chips fall where they may. And so Brittany sent it out and we had a bunch of calls scheduled. And then Pam Dorman and I had a conversation and our editorial connection. I mean, it's, it's, you know that thing when it's like you walk into a house and you know if you're supposed to buy it or not? It really was like that with Pam. I was like, well, I'm just kind of, I just need to be with her. I don't really even need to finish having conversations. And so Pam made an offer and I said, let's just do it. This is who I want to be with. It really was a meeting of the minds. Wow. And did you consider publishing at Knopf or you didn't even send it? No, I would no, I didn't send to anyone at Knopf Double Day because imagine how awkward that would be. I know. Like sitting in the marketing meeting and hearing how much money they're gonna spend. I couldn't do it. I I know. I was just <laughs> I know that's <laughs> I know. Or imagine if they felt they had to bid to be polite. That would be so awful. I know. I <laughs> 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 You're like, well, maybe go up a little. I don't know. You know, right? Totally. <laughs> Let me take a look at your PL. We can just yeah. adjust the price here. Yeah, totally. We'll sell more copies than that. I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so, armed with all this knowledge for the book to come out, is there anything that you've learned from all the authors? And I'm sure there's a bazillion things you've learned, but that you're really taking to heart, even in terms of marketing or publicity or what you want to have happen during your book journey, like what's going to make the experience satisfying for you? Oh, I love this question. And you know, the, the thing is, is like, even moving back in time, I'm so happy that I wrote a book and decided to publish it because I know it's made me a better editor. And I know I will be a better champion, but also a better line editor for having done this. I understand structure in a better way. I also understand something that I can't believe it took me so long to figure out. But, you know, I have certain writers who are reluctant revisers and they don't want, oh, they fight me tooth and nail. I say, hey, you know, this needs to be 20,000 words longer. And they say, how about five? And I say, how about 15? And we settle on, you know, it's like, I really, and I, I used to kind of think like, oh gosh, they just don't feel like doing it. That's not it. It's that when you're writing, you're in this creative zone. And when you're not writing, it's really hard to get back in there. And these writers are just struggling to get back in, you know, it's like, it, it, it it's not, it's not about will. It's about, it's about that creative thing. So I think, you know, I've already learned so much sort of from being an editor, but in terms of moving forward on the publication and what I've learned from watching my writers, 
number one is like, I have no desire to read bad Amazon or Goodreads reviews. Like that's just <laughs> not going to happen. I'll confess that I have read a few Goodreads reviews, but I did it like a total narcissist. I went in and I filtered to five-star reviews and I read a few of those and then I shut it down. <laughs> is, that, is that crazy? I <laughs> know it's perfect. That's what everyone should do. You're absolutely yes. right. And I'm, and I'm just never, I'm just not going to scroll down on Amazon because of course, inevitably, you know, someone tags you in a nice review on Instagram, but then you see below it, someone wrote like, oh, didn't finish, couldn't get into it. And then you spend two hours being like, couldn't get into it. Why not? You know, and then like, the, that is the path to madness. We don't need to do that, you know? So that's a lesson that I've, I like tell my writers not to do it, but I'm actually really not going to do it. And then I think also, I'm just right now in the say yes to everything mode. This is such a ride. You only get one chance in your whole life to publish your first book. And whether or not, you know, I ever even publish a second one, I, I'm so aware of how special this moment is. And I'm enjoying every second of it because it's brief and it's exciting and it's fun. And I'm just kind of soaking it all in. That's awesome. I love that. I feel like some sometimes like the perspective of this age or whatever, I'm a little older than you, but like the knowledge that these things are so temporary. I don't know. I feel like back when I like got married the first time, right? You know, like th- big things would happen before and it was all about like yes. preparing, you know, the stress and the event. And now it can be just like, no, like the whole thing is the fun part. Like the whole thing is before yeah. and after. And yeah. I and I also think like publishing your first novel in your 40s rather than in your 20s is awesome because I actually know that this was the best book I could write and I feel really proud of it. And I, and I feel like it's a better book than I would have been able to write when I was in my twenties. And I also have this really, I honestly know that not everyone will ever love anything and that's okay because my goal is to make people who love it, have a really fun time reading it, get something out of it, have amazing conversations with their friends, think hard about their relationship with their spouse, with money, with, you know, like really enjoy it. And for the people who don't, that's okay too, you know? And I think that like being able to have that attitude about your work, that you're excited for the fans to embrace it. And that's all that matters. You're excited for readers to get something out of it. That's, I mean, it's a healthier attitude than I'm probably would have had as a younger person. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's really great. I really enjoyed it. Oh, Your sense of humor is so great. Just your wit and how you look at things as like this societal recorder of sorts. Like, uh, it's just so funny. And even when you say things like, you know, there was some line about having kids, like somehow she got pregnant and you're like, oh, well, it was the regular way, but isn't it always just like a shock when that happens? Or <laughs> <laughs> like there's just so many lines where I'm like, oh, I've totally said that. Like somehow, you know, it just, well, you know, Kevin Quan is such an inspiration for me, but one of the reasons I'm inspired by him is Kevin told me that he kept a post-it note over his desk with the word joy written on it. And he wanted to rind, remind himself as he wrote that that was his goal was to make his reader feel joy. And so I did the same thing because I was writing it in the back half of 2020 and the front half of 2021. And I just desperately wanted to feel joy and I wanted to make other people feel joy. So that was, that was the goal. And I, I learned that from Kevin. Well, amazing. Well, now the both of you have brought me joy, so that's great. You know, double whammy here. (laughs) Thank you. So you're not going to write anything else? You're not sure? Are you? Oh, I would really, really like to. I would really like to. And I think, gosh, once you've gotten the bug for how 
fun it is. Like when you are writing a great scene and you finish it and you immediately want to like call your husband in and read it out loud to him, even though he's like actually really probably not in the mood and trying to do nine (laughs) other things. Like that is so fun when you make something and you're like, God, this is so good, you know? (laughs) So So once you've tasted it, I know it's kind of irresistible. So I'm probably going to try again because I just want that feeling again. That's awesome. It is addictive, addicting, addictive. Yes, uh, totally. Okay. Now that you're at this stage, what advice would you give to aspiring authors? Oh, you know, I think the advice is that the right book will come to you. And when it's easy, it's easy. And when it's hard, it's hard. And it's okay for it sometimes to feel awful. And every book tries to kill itself at least once. And you need to just stick with it because inevitably there are going to be parts of it that are so much fun to write. And inevitably there are going to be parts of it that are so hard to write. And you're going to think, I can't believe I'm even trying to write this and I should give up and I should try something else. Don't. Every book feels that way sometimes. That is excellent advice. Jenny, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you you for the book. It was delicious. Seriously, just like totally delicious. And like I savored it like a great fun meal that I felt a little bad about. <laughs> like oh, I over- that means you know, the world to it's me. Like so, I'm so uh, glad. It's so great. Anyway, so thanks for coming on and good luck. I'm so excited to watch you just soar with the publication. Thank you. Bye. Have a great day. Bye. Hope to see you soon. <laughs> Hope to see you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.